Are we recording? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're recording. Okay, we're going to have to do that over. Hey everyone, I'm Josh. And I'm Joseph. And this is What's Going On in the Garden. This is the show where we talk about what's going on in the garden. Well, Joseph, we posted the first podcast last week. We, you posted. Yes, but you shared it with all of your loyal social media fans. And we have listeners. People Ooh. actually listened. Ooh. <laughs> so because some people actually listen, we're going to make some more, at least as long as it's fun. Yeah. Um, because we both said we kind of have fun doing it last night. Yeah, time, right? it's pretty fun. We're not putting a whole lot of pressure on it. And so, yeah, it's no. good. Yeah, I have to fight all of my instincts to like, <laughs> over plan and make it a big production. I'm the kind of person who thinks I have to like um, re redecorate, buy new furniture, buy new china, and have like a themed menu plan and place cards if I'm going to invite somebody over for dinner. So Joseph balances me out there. He's trying hard not to make this a big production. So bear with us as we try to figure out how to make the sound sound good. We're still figuring that out, but we're... Also trying not to let this take over our lives. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's more time to do things like garden. So, Joseph. Yes. Um, renowned expert. Um, the reason I get up every morning. Yes. Matchless beauty and wonderful husband. Uh-huh. What's going on in the garden? <laughs> um... So at the home garden, we're kind of, I feel like we're in a transition phase from spring to summer. So even though it's only May yes. 2nd here, right? But where it's going to be nine, if we've hit 90, it's starting to get summery. The daffodils are going over, the azaleas are finishing up. So it's kind of like this transition phase into the, the summertime. The azaleas um, look pretty bad right now. They look terrible right now. <laughs> it's always the thing with azaleas. It's like they bloom so much they're just lousy with flowers and then when they start to go over they look terrible yeah, especially the white ones it's like they go from white to sort of like dirty handkerchiefs yes like no they look really bad it's really terrible why are there so many azaleas on our street I mean, it's a very southern thing okay like it's, it's a very so like all their neighborhoods like this it's just every every landscaper put a bunch of azaleas in it's kind of just the standard thing but because our house when we moved in there were i mean four or five azalea bushes well, there's a lot. There's four or five now. I took out like four or five when we moved in. And you also took down a spotted akuba, which yeah. is like your nemesis. We moved in. It was a lot of cutting down. <laughs> I did not like. And the neighbors did not like that. No, they did not like that at all. <laughs> Some of them had very strong opinions about what was growing in our garden. <laughs> yes, yes, they did not like my reckless disposal. But I, life's too short to have plants in the garden you don't like. Okay. But I'm, I'm accepting the remaining azaleas. They are pretty when they are in bloom, and then they look kind of nah a lot of the time. But Also, if we're talking about what's going on right now, the attack of the epic pollen. <laughs> what is going on? Yeah, all the trees There's are... Green stuff all over everything. I can't breathe. Yeah, all the trees are having sex. That's what it is. Ooh. That's a, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wish they would do so out of my respiratory tract. Well, it's too I think, much. I think we'll be through the, most of the trees flowering soon. Okay. Um, and then when we get into summer, the grasses are the other big pollen source that are like allergens. But um, right now, it's the, I think the oaks are flowering right now. Um, yeah. It was one thing was causing all the pollen. Now there's something else. Yeah, like the pines were earlier, and now it's, I think, the oaks. Um, so, yeah. 
And our house is pretty empty right now because the 75,000 houseplants have gone outside. Yes, we're free of frost, so all the houseplants can move out onto the deck. Um, some of them got sunburned, which is like a thing I always know. I know I shouldn't do this. Like, you're supposed to, when you move them outside, put them in like a shaded area at first and then gradually introduce them into brighter sun. And I always just plash everything you don't outside. Have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> some of these get burned, but then they grow new ones and, you know, whatever. Houseplants so, are generally more my thing than your thing anyway. Houseplants are too fussy. Yeah. They're too much, like, house, outdoor plants, if it's the right plant for the area, you kind of put it outside and it does its thing. And a lot of stuff is like maybe a couple times a year you need to fuss with it. But houseplants, if you don't water them all the time, they die. And that's too much That's too much intervention for me, really. I see. Well, what's going on in the ground right now at the home garden? So right now what looks really nice, I'm very happy with, is the phlox, phlox yeah. divaricata, which is a woodland phlox. Um, I just bought them as plugs. I think we mentioned this last time, so very small plants. Um, but they've come up and flowered as very small plants and looking really pretty. They're sort of shades of soft blue, slightly lavender blue. Um, they're really pretty. It's a um, it's a plant I really like because there was big native population populations of it in the woods where I grew up in northern Ohio. Oh. So it's sort of like nostalgic, um, but it's a really pretty thing, and it's really I really like it. We have like a cucurbit called caramel, which is kind of caramel colored, and then the white uh, daffodils and the blue phlox. The colors worked really well together. Must be a pretty versatile plant if it did well in northern Ohio and is doing well here too. I think it's native over a pretty wide swath of eastern U.S. Okay, so it's pretty adaptable. I mean, it's yet to sort of go through the summer, so who knows? Maybe it, maybe it will crap out when it gets to super hot. But I think the native range gets pretty far into the south because I. Uh, in Michigan, loved lamium growing with the hostas and had bought some and put it in the yard here. And some of it survives, but it's like not thriving. Yeah, a bunch of things that did well in Michigan in the summer here, it's like they grow in the spring and then they turn brown and disappear. Yeah. Like the astilbes, which is still be loves Michigan, just was lush and green all summer and bloomed like crazy. Here it like comes up each year in flowers and then in the heat of the summer it's just like I'm over it and turns brown and goes dormant. But And as you've already noted, we're hitting 90 degrees already. Yes, so. and we've already woken up and it's already like in the <laughs> 70s at 6 a.m. So. But the humidity hasn't been too bad. I mean, someone from Denver would probably die, die <laughs> already. Yeah. But it's really not bad so, so far. So far, but yeah. Okay, so the flocks are doing well. I agree, they look really great. And I noticed the bearded irises are blooming in the front. Yes, yeah. So I'm trying, there's like a bed by the front of the house that's kind of, I've never been super happy with. My first plan was like, it's right by the front of the house, so let's put lots of annuals with lots of bright flowers. But annuals, you have to like replace all the time. So it felt like it was a lot of times between it looking good and it not looking good. And then like, it looks good for a while. So I'm trying to move towards more perennial evergreen stuff that make it look good all the time. Um, but right now it's showing off well. It's a bearded iris called um, Stellar Lights. It's a nice, I really like the color. It's like yeah, a nice it's rich blue with like a kind of a white. Blue? Blue. Purple. Yes, blue. it is purple. <laughs> <laughs> it's green. <laughs> no, we have to, since you brought it, we have this like issue or this story. One time I was at a Whole Foods, I was in line trying to buy a reusable bag. And I said, I'll have the green one. And the cashier got like very upset because I called the blue bag green i guess She's like this is blue and you took her side and because it never was forget. but anyway the, the iris is purple but it's not a not a very strong red purple it's on the blue side of purple anyway it's purple <laughs> it's what classes for blue in iris land but it's pretty and it's supposed to re it's one of the reblooming varieties it looks uh, great yeah it's got a lot of flowers so i don't know it's a little too ruffly 
but it's got a nice, it's got a, a not lots of heavy bloom. Hopefully it'll rebloom. So I'm hoping that can be kind of like the flowery backdrop and then some evergreen sedums um, and taking up the front to sort of give us con continuity through the season. There's also oxalis that goes well in that front bed. Yeah, the purple leaf oxalis, um, which is, yeah, it's something, it's something that I grew as a house plant in the north end is perennial down here. Um, but yeah, that's coming up really well. So hopefully, yeah, I think I'm going to move more towards foliage in that bed and punctuated by bulbs and irises and stuff. And hopefully the foliage will keep it looking more consistently good through the seasons. Yes. Maybe. And I tried to plant some purple Lysomachia there, but it's not growing in the bed. It like broke out. It's just decided to run <laughs> off behind the bed, but I don't know. It's that, kind of That's what Lysomachia does. Yeah. It, they're, they're kind of, I feel like... We planted a lot of Lysomachia. Yes. I feel like in a year or two, it's going to have to be all ripped out because it's too aggressive and it's going to become the bane of our existence. I, I feel it coming. But like, right now it looks good because it it's looks filling good. in. It looks good filling in, but I feel like we're going to have a great Lysomachia purge of 2023. That's my prediction. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, you get ready for that. I'm going to enjoy how it fills in the garden now. So also uh, there are some trees blooming. We have lots of beautiful flowering trees in the spring here mm -hmm. so i know the cherries are over yeah most of the flowering trees are pretty much over but there's a tree flowering on our property now at home that looks really great yeah so well tree i would say shrub it's a huge one but when you think of viburnum, okay viburnum, well, it's a if viburnum. you're not a, pl a plant nerd it looks like a tree <laughs> this is one of the biggest ones i've ever seen it is enormous mostly because it's kind of reaching up uh, out of the shade of the house to grow really tall. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, so I've I've burned a placata. But you agree it looks like a tree. It's growing into a tree form, but if you've seen it growing, in most situations it's more shrubby. But it's it's planted right next to the house. Kind of a problem. Yeah, and because of that, it's like reached up above the house to get towards the sun. Um, it's really beautiful right now, but it shouldn't be that planted that close to the house. So I think I'm going to. I feel like the options are take it out completely because it just is too close to the house. It's overhanging the roof and like, it's not a great thing. Or I'm going to try cutting it back hard. And then does it, that mean cutting a lot of it off? Cutting virtually all of it off, cutting okay. it down, down to like a stump basically. And then when it shoots up new growth, take that and bend it and tie it and train it out to grow out horizontally. He's doing all kinds of elaborate hand gestures for that. Yes. If you were all here, you could see me <laughs> gesturing to indicate, but essentially taking and as it sends out new growth, tying it down to force it to grow out horizontally over the top of our fence rather than up into the air over the house. Oh, okay. That's the plan. I don't know if that'll work or not, but I feel like if I, if it doesn't work, we'll just chop it down. But it it can't do what it's doing right now, so I'm going to try drastic surgery and training first, and see what happens. Okay, well, that's all on you. Yes, I barely understood what you said, but, <laughs> but it is a beautiful plant. Like it, the flowers are white, loaded with white, flowers. really nice uh, foliage. Yeah. Yeah, and unlike the, the azaleas that have white flowers that turn into like dirty handkerchiefs, this one, once the flowers fade, they drop off cleanly, yes. not as brown black. So it looks really great. Yeah, it looks really pretty. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's going on in the offsite garden? So, just to remind our listeners, the offsite garden is where you do plant breeding and you collect some things and grow anything that needs full sun. So, vegetables and stuff, because the home garden is all shaded. Right. So, what's going on over there? So, the big thing is tea. 
harvested my first harvest. You got some hot tea, my <laughs> Yes. Oh, yes, God. <laughs> there you go. You tried. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm growing tea, so which is Camellia sinensis. And it's a shrub, evergreen shrub. And we're in the zone where it's hardy now, so I wanted to try growing some. So I've got um, probably 40 tea shrubs there um, at the garden. But this has been a years-long thing. I, mean, I think they're three out? years old now. So I started them from seed, um, which I love to do because seed is so like low stakes. Because to buy like shrubs is expensive, and like I don't drink that much tea. I just really wanted to play around with it and try growing it. Um, so seed is really, really inexpensive way to, to get started. You just have to be patient. Um, so these are, I started them three years ago from seed and now they're, um, about three feet tall shrubs and I'm starting to harvest some tea. So you pick the leaves, yeah. right? And then you dry them and then you can steep them. So I was reading, I think I did this first batch wrong. I just dried them. So apparently I was reading more details for green tea. You let them sit and wilt for a while and then either steam or fry them. Fry? Yeah, like fry them in a pan. So you have to heat them, which stops some kind of chemical reaction from happening. And then you smoosh them in a towel and squeeze all the water out, and then you dry them. Black tea, you do that, but without the cooking step. And then after you after they've um, smooshed them in a towel, you let them sit for 48 hours, and that causes a chemical reaction that turns it into black tea. So the heating step stops the green tea from turning black and getting the flavors of black tea. I just cut it and dried it, which I think is the process used to make white tea. Okay. Um, I tried brewing a little bit of it, and it tasted good, but very, very mild. Like, very, very mild taste. So I think I want to try the next batch doing the black tea process, because that's the most involved, and that sounds fun. Okay. So last year you were growing herbal teas, too, that aren't necessarily the tea plant, but things yeah. that you might... You had like chamomile and yeah, it was, and also like clitoria or something. <laughs> yeah, That's clitoria. Because I remember drinking blue like <laughs> yeah. So clitoria, also called the butterfly pea, okay, um, has blue flowers, and when you make tea out of the flowers, it turns the water like bright blue, right? But it's pH dependent, so if you put lemon juice in it and make it acidic, it turns to purple towards red, and then alkaline things make it bluer. But it doesn't taste like much. It's mostly just no. Blue. But you were growing stevia too. That we mixed. I grew stevia, yeah. But I don't really stevia. So like it's like a classic. It's a, a famous for being a non-calorie sweetener. But it's kind of a, it's kind of an unpleasant sweetness to my tongue. Well, we don't really like. But sweet it doesn't taste stuff. like to me. It kind of has like a tinny. I don't know. It's kind of. I don't really love the way it tastes. It's definitely sweet. It's very very sweet. But a little bit. Meh. Okay. I'm still growing chamomile because I love homegrown chamomile. Yeah. So I don't know. I had like, but had chamomile tea before and not really liked it. But the fresh chamomile I harvest, which is the flowers of the chamomile plant, brewed is like delicious and much more aromatic and flavorful than any chamomile. I, I think you liked it a lot. Yeah, too. I did. Yeah. yeah. So that's something I definitely want to keep growing because I like drinking chamomile tea and it's like so much better than anything I bought at the store. And it's an annual that's just started self-seeding in my garden. So I'm not planting it. It just comes up and I don't weed it out and it's just growing around on it. And it's a little tedious to pick because you have to pick each flower as mm -hmm. they open. Um, but it's really good. It's a little of like, I tried a lot of different herbal teas. Like I just wanted to grow everything that I could. And chamomile is like the one I've like definitely in my permanent rotation because it's delicious and yeah, and pretty easy. Cool.
So you're also growing roses? I grow a lot of roses, and we're just getting started with the rose season. Just the first one's blooming. So what's in peak bloom right now is what's called the Cherokee Rose, which is Rosa Levagata, which is called the Cherokee Rose, even though it's native to Asia. Okay. Don't get us started on it's something, plant names. Yeah, it's something that was like imported to the U.S. very early. And then in the south, like further south in here, it goes feral and it's kind of a weed. And people thought it was native and called it the Cherokee Rose, even though it's not. But it's where we are. It's not. I've never seen it growing feral and it's not become a weed. I'm keeping an eye on it. Make sure it does not start setting seed because um, I don't want it seeding around and becoming a problem. But it's it's really beautiful big white flowers very fragrant yeah. just covers itself in bloom it's one of my favorite species roses evergreen glossy evergreen leaves i think it's a really beautiful plant it also is the vicious most vicious huge thorns oh, that are hooked and like just they've ripped clothes oh you know that shirt you got me in taiwan with the the neklachan i got that in tokyo in tokyo anyway and you spilled ink on it five seconds after I bought it. <laughs> and now there's a big hole ripped in it. Oh, okay. That's because I walked too close the to rest. the Rosalie Vigata and it literally like will rip holes in your clothes. You having clothes with holes in them? <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> so it's so beautiful. It's so vicious. Um, but I'm really trying to, I want to hybridize it with other roses to maybe get some of the good traits with some, without some of the bad traits. But we'll see. That's a long process. Okay. Well, I saw on your Instagram that you were growing a gladiolus. Now, I know you grow gladiolus, but I think of that as more of a like June, July thing. What's going on with this gladiolus? So gladiolus comes in two groups. There's the summer growing species and the winter growing species. They're from, okay. from Africa, and um, most of them are from South Africa. And South Africa has a lot of these different rainfall patterns. Some places are dry in the summer and wet in the winter, and the, some places the inverse. And so... The summer growing species are the ones that most of us are most familiar with that get big, tall spikes and grow in the summer, obviously. Okay, can we just like, hold on a second here? Because yeah. we think that those gladiolus look modern and architectural and very like stylish, even, yeah. right? But you, you said that some people who follow you on Instagram or Facebook said that they're like funeral flowers or something. Yeah, I feel like there's a big generational thing. But that like tall spike of flowers it looks so, I don't know. Yeah, I really cool love I really love gladiolus, but I they had a huge, they were like, I'm, I'm trying to remember now. I think what I remember was that they were enormously popular in like the 40s and 50s. Okay. So like, like the baby boomers grew up with them being like their parents' flowers and they look old and old fashioned and they're very popular in funeral arrangements. And so I feel like there's like a generational shift. I like everything. If your parents liked it, then it looks out of date. Mm -hmm. And then if it's been out of fashion long enough, it starts looking cool again. So definitely looks cool to me. Yeah, because we don't have any association of like no our parents or grandparents. It doesn't look like an old grandma flower to me. Like geraniums look like a grandma or petunias look like kind of old fashioned, like or hostas. But you like hostas. Um, <laughs> there's plants that I definitely have that association with, but gladiolus I don't. They look cool to me. Um, yeah, they look very cool. So yeah. is it like this kind of gladiolus? Does it have a grow on a spike like that? They have a much shorter flower spike. So these are some of the winter-growing species from South Africa, um, which are much smaller, much shorter, but have really beautifully, intricately shaped flowers. Um, so one that I post a picture of that I really love is gladiolus elatus, which is like, it's so hard to describe. It kind of has like 
three hooded orange petals and then three petals that hang down that are green and orange mm. kind of striped it's something you i don't know you probably don't like it right i mean it looked okay in the photo but there's so many things that you collect that are just a little too out there i for me. love it because it looks so unlike any other flower out in the world it's very the shape is really unusual the coloration is really unusual it smells really nice um so yeah the winter growing species are hard to grow here obviously because even though we're mild in the winter they it's not like frost free in the winter so i have to grow them inside and then try to put them outside in the spring to flower but of course i want to try i would love to hybridize the winter growing species with the summer growing species and get some of those unusual flower forms into something that's easier to grow so they're part of the reason why we always have fungus gnats i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> No idea what you're talking Can't about. Can't put food in the fridge. It's full of seeds and fungus gnats in the house. I have no Sometime idea. Sometime we'll have to explain your whole lighting setup and how you've turned a room of our house into <laughs> some kind of makeshift, I don't know, greenhouse or something. Do you have a problem with that? So many problems, <laughs> but we don't have time for that. You also said you really wanted to talk about Clarkia. You seem very excited. I'm about so Clarkia excited about Clarkia, which I hate that name. Because it's it's a, a, a genus of plants native to, to California, and so it's named after. Yes, we have to decolonize the plant. Yes, names. Lewis and Clark. He seems like a horrible person, <laughs> but it's a beautiful group of plants. So they are winter-growing annuals native to California, though our summers are very unlike California. Ca California is like, in general, the West Coast has like dry summers, and then the it rain is not dry here. And then the rain is in the winter time. So there's a lot of plants adapted to grow fall through spring when there's rain, and then die out in the summer and so clarkias are a group of those that are winter growing annuals mostly and i didn't think know if they would survive our winter because we are we do have snow and freezing weather um but i planted a dozen different species in the fall and they've all grown through the winter and look really bushy and happy and they're just a couple of them starting to flower so in the next couple of weeks they should be all blooming and i'm going to be have a lot more to say about which are my favorites and everything but i'm just excited because it's a whole group of plants i wouldn't have thought would grow here and they did not mind the winters at all. They grew beautifully through the winter and are looking as happy as a clam. Well, everyone will be in suspense to see if they work out <laughs> the edge of our seats. So I thought we could have segments because Ooh. that's what podcasts do. Is this segment brought to you by anything? <laughs> no. Casper Mattress hasn't no, showed up yet no, to try to no. sponsor us. <laughs> um, Squarespace and Casper Mattress or um, Blue Apron, none of them no, have not. shown up yet. <laughs> So all you do is you get in these modes where you're obsessed with a particular plant, a yes. genus or a species, and you research everything about it and you talk about it every time I speak to you for weeks on end. So I want to give you an opportunity to share with the children uh, <laughs> your obsession. So we're going to have a segment where you talk about a plant that you can't let go that you're really focused on mm -hmm. right now. And I thought we could call it a plant you're digging. Okay. Because oh, there's a pun. Ooh. <laughs> see? Do you see what I did there? Mm -hmm. Yes, I okay. do, unfortunately. So what's the plant you're digging right now? Well, the honest answer is Clarkia, but we're going to save that for when they're more flowering okay. and there's more to say. But a plant I'm really... Another... Because there's always a multitude of plants. Ain't that the truth. <laughs> um, is actually Saxifrage stolonifera, which is also... common name is called Strawberry Begonia. Oh, okay. That's much easier to say. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's one of those plants that I grew up thinking of as a house plant, but is hardy down here in zone seven. Um, and it has, it's called the strawberry begonia, 
because the leaves look vaguely begonia-like, sort of patterned with silver patterns on them, really pretty leaves. And then strawberry because they send out runners with plantlets on the end of them, the same way strawberries do. And it's kind of plant I was like kind of was aware of and kind of liked. But then we were at uh, Lewis Ginter Botanic Garden, which is not too far from us here in, in Michigan and in Michigan, in Virginia, in a wonderful, really, really beautiful botanic garden. And they had it growing as a ground cover in the shade. And I thought it was really beautiful because it just makes this sheet of kind of dark green foliage, which is patterned over with silver. And because it does send out runners, it kind of spreads and fills in an area and seems to be really durable down here big clouds of white flowers that are about to be starting soon. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And then I started poking around and there's a bunch of different selections of it. So there's one that I'm growing, which is called like Harvest Moon, I think, um, which is like a yellow leaf version of that. And another one I dug up somewhere that has like a darker reddish leaf. Um, so I'm really interested to grow them um, because I feel like they give, especially with those colored leaf forms, some of the effect that I would look to a heuchera to give yeah i can see they're kind of like heucheras but they're not as colorful so they're actually in the same family yeah they're not as colorful but heucheras have had you know a lot of breeding amping up the colors okay but most heucheras are kind of terrible garden plants in places that have hot human summers hmm. okay. they don't they don't persist very well for right. a lot of us they look really beautiful at the nursery and then they go through a sad decline in your garden so i'm kind of thinking it might be a interesting place to look for sort of to get some of that foliage color for shade um, good ground cover that is more perennial and vigorous in like this climate than most heucheras are. Okay, so you're growing those this year. You're working on that. Yeah, yeah, I have a bunch of them. Uh, they're on the side of the house under the viburnum of which we spoke recently. Okay, well maybe we'll hear more about those later too. Then. Yeah, of course. So another segment that we can do is taking questions from our tens and tens of listeners <laughs> hordes of <laughs> rabid followers <laughs> because another thing that i've noticed is once people find out what you do for a living the questions start coming i say i just like love answering gardening questions like when i give presentations my favorite part is the q a and the more off the wall the cues the cues are the better because it's really fun i don't know it's like a fun challenge to try to answer questions off but even my colleagues at work who are not in the gardening world at all when they find out what you do they start asking me <laughs> questions about their orchid or whatever else so we're gonna have a mailbag where you answer questions so this week's question is not something that we solicited specifically for the podcast, but it's a question you've gotten recently. Yeah. And I have to say, it's a pretty frequent question. Uh, so the question is about how to deal with mammals, because mammals can be real pests in the garden. I have seen that they really destroy things. Down here, it seemed like in Michigan, you were more upset about groundhogs and deer. Yeah. Here, it's the voles. Yeah. And we also have. A dog that uh, I'm, I am uh, I am more thrilled about having than you are, who can be a bit of a pest when it comes to digging things up. So how do you deal with mammals? How do you deal with mammals? Yeah, so I, I, I hate mammals in general, but I do think they're like a group of like major pests, like deer, rabbits, groundhogs, voles, squirrels. Um, all like to eat plants and can be a hassle to deal with. I think that I feel like there's like two different ways to approach it. The one is to grow things they don't eat. And that's, I feel like easier to find what that is. Google makes it pretty easy. Like if I don't know pretty, I just put the name of the plant and like deer 
into Google and pop up a lot of resources saying it is deer resistant or it's not deer resistant. Another good rule of thumb is like often if the foliage has a strong smell to it, usually they don't like to eat it. Right. So like marigolds are like old classic. And that Elysium that we're growing has like an anise. Yeah. Right? Like, it, yeah. So often if it has like a sm strong smell to it, like magnolias have like a strong smell. Like if you bruise the leaf or scratch it um, and you get like a spicy smell, not 100%, but that's a pretty good like rule of thumb that right. most things are not going to want to eat it. And then Google's your friend there. The other option is like repellent sprays, mm -hmm. which my experience is they work in the short term, but they become quickly become really expensive and tedious. They also smell terrible. They smell terrible. I think it's like one of those things It's like it's actually not a solution. Uh, you haven't put your fence up yet and you need something to stop it. But long term, you have to spray regularly because... If the new growth comes out, it's not been sprayed to leave the new growth. If you have a lot of rain, it'll wash it off. It smells terrible. You forget. And over time, deer do seem to figure out that even though it smells bad, they can still eat the plants. Wow. So They're really evil. They really are. They are the spawn of <laughs> the devil. So I think repellent sprays are like a stopgap measure, but not like a really permanent one. Um, so choosing things they don't eat is good. And then fencing is the other one. So like in our home garden, the front yard, I just have to plant things that they don't eat. Right. The backyard, we just have a low chain link fence, but the chain link fence plus the dog seems to be the deer do not enter at all. And so back there- And some of it has uh, eight foot privacy. Yeah, so there's too. some fence back there. Um, and then the, the dog running around, the smell of the dog combined with the fence. No, See, he contributes. He does contribute. <laughs> um, so backyard, I grow stuff that the deer do want to eat. In the front yard has to be stuff that the deer do not eat. Um, and then the other, the annex, the other garden, have a, I have a eight foot, no, six foot, six foot fence around yeah. the garden to keep the deer out. So fencing is like for deer is like, it's really the only permanent solution. Um, yeah. And that works well with rabbits too. What about the voles? Voles are spawn of the, like. A, They're a real problem here. That's something. So in the North we have voles, but it's a different species and they're very, a minor pest. They like crocuses. They're not a big deal. Down here, something called like the Southern Pine Vole. It's a different species of vole that's like kind of Virginia South. We're right on the northern edge of it. And it is a voracious. They tunnel underground and they eat everything. They love hostile roots and they eat whole plants. And they you killed just, fancias. That we yeah, like these big shrubs. And it's like they were like perfectly healthy. And then what they just completely kill over because all the roots have been eaten off. Um, and I don't have a magic solution. We've been using Permatil. Yeah. So Permatil is like the best solution I've found so far, which is like a, I think it's slate rock. It's a rock that's heated up till it poofs up like popcorn. Marketed to like improve drainage of soil, but it's also very like sharp edged and they don't like digging through it. So basically everything I put in the ground when I plant it, I take a few handfuls of Permatil and put it around and under this root ball. And I would say it works 80, 90% of the time. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's not a perfect solution, but you know we've lost a few hostas. We have plenty of other hostas that look good. So it's and I think the more I'm planting stuff and adding it, we're increasing the amount of that permatil in the soil, which hopefully makes the garden as a whole less appealing for voles to dig through. Someone told us to plant hostas in pots and put the pot in the ground. Yeah, but that didn't work for us. That did not work because they went over the top. And, then, and it's, a, I find it's a really, a really a pain to plant thing. You have to, to get the pot in and then there's a rim of the pot and you're limiting the root spread because it can't grow through the walls of the pot. You, like they, they cut off the bottom so the yes. roots can grow down. But I haven't found that to be practical. 
We have some friends who just leave their hostas in pots. Yeah, sitting, in containers. Yeah, sitting outside. But you said there's some kind of cage you can buy. I have too, seen, right? and someone recommended me, and I have to look at it again, where it's like a wire mesh that you wrap around the root ball and then plant that in the ground. Um, but they're a hassle. But then there's also, again, planting things they don't eat. So, like, instead of tulips, which everything loves to eat, daffodils are toxic. And so you can pretty much plant them anywhere and you don't have to worry about it. Any solutions for dealing with Bodie, the dog? Um, plant big things. Yeah, he seems to leave bigger plants alone. I, the, the most damage, honestly, is from him running, just running over things as they're first coming up. So they're first sprouting up small tender things. He's not like he's, he's not super destructive, actually. He likes to dig up. If we've just dug that soil and it's loose, he'll kind of redig it up. But once they're growing, it's he's not so damaging. But I feel like the most success we've had is like excluding him from an area while the plants right. are getting established. And once they're big and established, not so bad. So so we have some pretty cheap like that chicken mean? wire fencing that we just use to partition the yard. So... If there's an area with delicate plants, he can't go there. Yeah, and that seemed to have worked pretty well. Yeah. Because once they're up and growing, I mean, he may break a stem here and there, but it's not so bad. And he definitely is paying, he's earning his keep and keeping the deer scared away. So we'll, we'll accept him begrudgingly. <laughs> well, if you have questions that you want to send for the next episode to hear from our uh, plant expert, you can send them to Joseph on Facebook or Instagram. How do people find you on Facebook and Instagram? Um, just search for Tychonovich at Tychonovich, um, which is hard to spell, but surely it's on the show notes here somewhere. Surely you can find it. T-Y-C-H-O-N-I-E-V-I-C-H. But we'll put it somewhere. Yeah. Um, so if you search for that, they're going to find you. And yeah. luckily it's not a common last name. Yeah, so. or my website, josephgardens.com. Oh, okay. That might be There's easier a contact term, me there, yeah. So if you go there, you can see photos of the garden as well the, some of the plants that we've been talking about you can also see his world naked gardening day photo which hubba hubba <laughs> which you made me post but yes i made you post <laughs> i've only but... lost 10 followers over that <laughs> i'm sure you will gain many more uh from other parts of the internet <laughs> well i guess that's it for today so maybe tune in next week we're gonna do this again right yes uh so if you tune in next week you can hear more about what What's going on in the garden? Oh my gosh. <laughs>